Welcome to Ad Hoc History. It's not the history podcast you wanted. It's the history podcast you deserve. What's up, everybody? I am Asher, and I am joined here today with my sister, as always, Luxa. How is it going, dude? Pretty good. Pretty good, man. Stoked to hear about this. Yes, we have a good episode for y'all today. Our first show of the new year, 2021. Happy New Year. Yeah, let's hope that this will be a better one than the last. But Yeah, um, and if not, we know, uh, we know we got through the last one, so we can get through this one, too. <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, so we have today, we've been talking for quite a while that this is not just a Greco-Roman podcast, and we're going to st- you know, cover other parts of the world, and today we're finally going to do it. We're going to take the jump out of Western Civ, and we're going, we're going into East Asia. We're going to talk about the Qin Dynasty and Qin Shi Quan, the first emperor of China. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear about this. So this is... This is the guy that left behind like that crazy legacy of like the tomb and everything, right? For the longest time, it was thought that this guy was kind of a legendary figure and that these things that were, you know, said about him in our source for the episode, Sima Qian, Qian, Qian the grand historian who's writing 100 years later for the Han dynasty, the, the dynasty that comes after the Qin, he was kind of thought to have been kind of a bard, uh, you know, a, a waxing poetic on a lot of this stuff but in 1973 you know some farmers kind of stumbled into what turned out to be the greatest you know archaeological discovery of the 20th century and the terracotta army and they found the tomb of this guy and it's just way bigger than anything you could possibly like reasonably expect okay yeah i think i've seen some photographs of it and it really is impressive i read that like each one of the like soldiers in this terracotta army was like unique yeah and i think this was possibly modeled after real soldiers each one was armed with what can only be described as exquisite quality bronze weaponry this is probably the finest bronze uh, weapons that have ever been found and these are from over two thousand years ago and they've been preserved so they think that the Qin metalsmiths had some kind of coating or some kind of alloy that they used on their bronze that made it resilient and was able to last all these years. So, but yeah, the terracotta army is, it's, it's an amazing site and they have, they've found 7,000 soldiers so far, but that's just a small part of the actual site that's been excavated. And the tomb itself has not been excavated. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, th- this is a story that is, this is the Chinese Caesar. This guy is larger than life. And this has all the trappings of a great tragedy. There's hubris. There, there's human failings. There's the desire to be, to conquer death. And there's intrigue. You know, there, there's sex. There's murder. There, there's everything here in this. All right. Well, I'm hella stoked. All right. So who was this guy? Okay, so just a, a little background first. All right, so so he is born in 259 BC. And he's born on February 18th, so he's an Aquarian. Yeah. So he, he's born into a kingdom, the Qin kingdom. And so at this time, this is called the Warring States period of Chinese history. And this had been going on for over 200 years. So this, this kind of started at around, around 500 BC. You know, there was kind of... I think it was called the Zhou Empire, which was not a unified China, but it was at least a strong kingdom that kind of had a peaceful reign. 
But when, when that dynasty broke down, all these other kingdoms kind of rose up and you had seven different kingdoms that were basically feudal states that were fighting it out, you know, for over 200 years. Okay. Oh. And this is, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just thinking, I was looking at these names here. I do want to note that neither of us speak Chinese. And so I apologize in advance for how terribly we're going to say these names. So sorry about that. Yeah. We're going to try though. We're going to do our best. We're going to try our best. Yeah. And so like, you know, the chin, you know, it's spelled Q-I-N, but it's pronounced chin, like what's on your face. And it's not to be confused with the Qing, Q-I-N-G, because that's a dynasty that comes, that's actually the last dynasty. So it's kind of like the first and the last have very similar names. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the names are really difficult. We're going to do our best. I'm going to try and just do the uh, Romanized pronunciations, even though I know they're incorrect. You know, so Lee C, I'm just going to say Lee C because that's how it's spelled. I know that's not how it's actually pronounced, but all right. So anyways, so a little bit more about China. All right. So we talked a little bit about this warring states period. There are seven different kingdoms, and these are very much like feudal kingdoms that have a king. They have a nobility and the nobility, you know, have has levies and soldiers. And so it's very dispersed. It's not a centralized, it's not an empire at all. It's all these little kingdoms fighting it out. It's very much like kind of the Middle Ages in Europe. These seven kingdoms, these are really the core of Chinese civilization. And the modern state of China is much larger than the areas we're going to be talking about today. And this is basically kind of the space between and around the two rivers. And that's the Yellow River and the Yangtze. And these are two of the largest, you know, most fertile rivers in the world. And the two of them together make kind of like a fertile crescent that's very much similar to Mesopotamia with the Tigris and Euphrates. A lot of China is very deserty. Uh, most of Northwest China is desert. And most of Northern China is like tundra. Southern China is more jungly. But in the middle there, there's a sweet spot that is, you know, this temperate zone that is incredibly fertile between these two rivers. And so that's where these kingdoms are. This is this kind of uh, this core area of China. And, and I can post a map of this. But um, anyway, so to the north, you have you have Siberia and Manchuria. And it's cold. You know, there's a lot of barbarians up there. It's the same old kind of story. These barbarians are coming down and. You know, they're very fierce warriors. They are horsemen, you know, and these civilized people in China are scared of them. They don't like dealing with them. Uh, To the west, you have big ass desert. You have the Gobi Desert, one of the biggest, driest deserts in the world. And that's kind of a natural border between China and the Middle East. And then to the south, uh, the southwest, you have the Himalayas, which border between India and Tibet which is another massive natural border. I mean, it can't get any bigger than that. And then the further south and east you go, then you have the jungles of of Indochina, which is in itself kind of like a border. So China's kind of an isolated little area, or not little, huge area. Mm -hmm. It's a huge area, but it's kind of isolated. And then obviously to the east, you have Korea and Japan. That's just kind of the geography of this. Now, the kingdom we're going to be talking about is the Qin kingdom. And that is the most Western kingdom. So the kingdom that's touching that desert to the West, that's the kingdom we're going to be talking about. And, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a fortuitous position if you want to conquer the rest of the country because your flanks are secured. There's no countries in the desert. The countries are to the East. And so it's kind of a good staging ground for an invasion. And that's what happens. But anyway, so that's just a little bit more about the geography. We got these two rivers, you know, and 
It should also be noted that the, the Yellow River is one of the most dangerous rivers in the world. It has a ton of uh, silt and sediment in it, and it is very prone to uh, breaking its banks and causing massive floods. Mm. Anyways, so it's very catastrophic. But one thing, one side effect of that is that it fertilizes this huge area when it does that. So it's destructive, but it also brings new life. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You see a lot of places, you know? But yeah, so our story is going to start in 259 BC with the birth of a man by the name of Zhang. And his father, King Zhuang Jiang of Qin, died on the throne after only three years in power. And so this is in the year 246 BC. So when Ying Zhang is born... His father's not even king, but his father does become king and then dies three years later. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. By this time, he is 13 years old. So when he is 13 years old, his king or his father, the king, dies. And, you know, he, he's obviously too young to take over, but he is appointed the successor. And so his mother comes to him and uh, who's lady by the name of Lady Zhao, who was, you know, the, the wife of his father. She suggests that, you know, we should make the regent this guy named uh, by the name of Lu Buai. And he was the, a previous regent for the for the king before him. He was kind of running the state, a very capable man, very good bureaucrat. Uh, and that is one thing about Chinese civilization is that bureaucracy goes back way further in China than anywhere else. And this idea of merit, meritocracy, it's always kind of been central to Chinese civilization. So the idea of a civil service that, you know, there is a cast of people that have to pass an exam to enter this civil service. They have to prove that they're smart enough to serve the state, uh, a bureaucratic meritocracy. Anyways, this guy, Lu Boy, he is a master bureaucrat and he's been running the state of Qin for, for a while now. And, but it turns out he has secretly been having an affair with the queen, Lady Zhao. Not sure how long this has been going on, but apparently for quite a while. So he takes over as the regent and, you know, he he's running the country basically while Ying Zhang, who will become the Emperor Qin later, is a child, you know. And so during this time, these wars are just been going on forever. And the Qin state seems to have kind of been finding an upper hand and they were kind of making progress. This war is going along and a man comes to the court. He's from the province Chu, which is the southernmost province in China. Okay. This is a man by the name of Li Si. And he is a foreigner, but he is very well-spoken. And he comes to the court and he interviews with Lu Boy, who's running the state. And Lu Boy appoints him to a position in the court. And... He will come to regret this later. but uh, <laughs> Mistakes were made. <laughs> yes. And this is a really interesting guy, this Li Si guy. And he will be with the Emperor Qin for his entire life. He will be his by his side the entire time. He is the intellect, the intellectual behind the throne. And he comes up with his own kind of philosophy that comes to dominate this dynasty. Some quotes here from 
Sima Tian, quote, One day, Li Si observed that rats in the outhouse were dirty and hungry, but the rats in the barn house were well fed. He suddenly realized that there is no set standard for honor since everyone's life is different. The values of people are determined by their social status. And, like rats, people's social status often depends purely on the random events of life around them. And so, instead of always being restricted by moral codes, people should do what they deem best at the moment. End quote. Okay. Reading more about this Lee C guy, I think he's probably one of the great cynics of all time. His view on human nature is um, its quite negative, quite cynical. But he comes to the palace and he quickly realizes how things work here. And he has this little quote here, again from Sima Tian. Quote, I never expected to find rats in a royal palace. But then again, why not? Drawn by a chance and an easy meal and conditioned by fear? A royal palace is the same as anywhere else. Control the food and control the fear, and you control the rat. <laughs> oh my God, dude. <laughs> I know. Love this I mean, guy. he's not wrong. Right? I know. Like, that's the thing about him. I don't know if he's wrong about any of this stuff. It's that he's so negative. But anyways. Well, I, I don't think, I mean, I think you can be, like, not wrong and still not have the whole story, too, right? Like, sure, I sure, think sure. there's more to the story. But, like, that's, uh, man a very calculated man he sees how how things work his philosophy his view on human nature is that you you there are no moral restrictions that you should do what's best at the moment that's that's human nature that's how it works all of this moral stuff that's just a distraction from the truth that we don't want to admit to ourselves kind of that's my take on it at least okay no interesting That, that that makes sense and um yeah so so anyway so this era continues, you know, and Lu Boy is still running a kingdom while uh, Ying Zhang is coming of age. But in 230 BC, Li Si comes to King Zhang and tells him that the stars have foretold that this chance, this one once in a thousand year chance has come for somebody to unite the entire world, which for them was China. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... I'm getting like distinct like Jafar vibes from this Lisi dude. Is that kind of like okay? Absolutely, dude. <laughs> We're talking about Jafar from Disney's Aladdin. If anybody did catch that, yes. <laughs> I, I, you know, I kind of thought that too. Now, I don't think he's as evil as Jafar. Um, well, I guess maybe he is. We'll, we'll get I don't to know. some. Of was it. Jafar evil, or was he just like self interested? <laughs> right. I, don't I mean, know. I don't know. <laughs> have to have to rewatch that with the more critical. <laughs> critical eye too, i don't really remember <laughs> i don't i don't either yeah i just remember he was uh he was acting pretty creepy towards yeah Jasmine. he was pretty there was some real creepy i'm not sure how well that shit's aged y'all <laughs> like, yeah a lot of that disney stuff yeah so lisi comes to king zhang and tells him that the stars have foretold that now is the time for this legendary ruler to take control of the world and to put his stamp on reality and changed things. So China's been going through this period of war for over 200 years. This is, by the way, one of the darkest periods in Chinese history. Li Si says, we can end it. You can end it. Okay. 
the stars have foretold it, and you have this chance. This chance comes around once every thousand years, but it's even more rare that there's such a person to rise and meet such a destiny. But you, King Zhang, you are that man. And so the conquest of China begins. Okay. So the Qin army. um, So at this point, he is in his mid-20s. I think he's 26 when he takes over. And so Lu Boy is no longer kind of running the show. King Zhang takes over and he leads this kind of epic army on this epic conquest. Very reminiscent of Caesar or Alexander. This army was badass. Like it, it really was. And we actually know a lot about it because of because of the terracotta army. And we know their armaments. We know their order of battle. Like we know a lot about it. And this army, you know, it, it was able to conquer China. And he becomes this kind of epic warrior king. And he has this kind of idea that he can he can be this first person to end end the warring states period and bring peace and unite China. But it's not going to be pretty. That's one thing. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be pretty. But the ends are going to justify the means. So his first big battle is against the state called the Han, which is the state directly to the east of Jin. It's a smaller state that's actually surrounded on all sides by other states. Been weakened, and uh, that was their first target. Their army smashed them, and he took over 10,000 prisoners in this battle, which, you know, this that's a big amount in, in the ancient world. You know, this is 230 BC. He takes 10,000 prisoners of the Han, but he goes in front of the army, and, and the rules of war are very clear. These people have surrendered and they need to be provided for very very clear well he has them all executed he makes every soldier execute a captive he bloodies his whole army in this massive war crime where they execute 10,000 people you know so this this marks the this marks the conquest of china it's this this uh, it's not pretty that's yeah geez dude fuck a little bit more about this army and Again, we know about it because of the tomb that was discovered. The Chinese uh, metallurgists, especially these Qin metallurgists, they seem to have out-teched the rest of China. Their swords, their long swords, were like a foot longer than the other people they were fighting. Hmm. They had these huge dagger axes, which is basically a spear with a dagger coming out the side of it perpendicular. Like a halberd. Yeah, okay. Cool. Uh the quality on these things is unbelievable. So each one has been inspected by the minister of state and has been engraved with his seal of approval. So Lu Boy, all these weapons they found in his tomb, these were the weapons that his soldiers used. They were purchased, ordered by Lu Boy. The, the minister of state was literally putting his neck on the line to inspect every single weapon to make sure it's up to standards. Like, so the quality control was just off the charts. Um, now, all right, so we talked about the dagger axe and the sword. The main weapon that made these Chinese armies so powerful was something called the Chukonu, which is a crossbow, Chinese crossbow. Uh, this was invented, you know, 500 BC. This weapon Shit. wasn't, yeah, this weapon wasn't seen in Europe till I think the Middle Ages. I think that's right. Yeah. It's a marvelous weapon of the ancient world. Compared to a bow, it's a higher caliber shot. You know, so it's a bigger arrow. It travels further, has much more puncturing power. It's more accurate. 
So it has all of that going for it. The only thing that it doesn't have going for it is that it's much, much, much slower than a bow. So you have this trade-off. In terms of like reloading it? Yeah, in terms of yeah firing. Okay. Yeah, so there's a Chinese source, a general that says the bow is much superior if you're not prepared for battle. If, if you're ambushed or if you're, you know, if you're, if you're caught unawares, then mm-hmm. the bow is a better weapon. You know, if you're ready for battle and you can have all of your crossbows loaded and all your, you know, if you have everything prepared, then the crossbow is way better. But, and, and just an interesting side note in Chinese history is that the further it goes on, the less and less the crossbow is used and the more and more the bow is used. And then by the Mongol period, the, the crossbow is almost gone. And it's hmm. kind of coming into its own in Europe at that time. So it's kind of interesting. They kind of went in different directions. but Yeah, that is interesting. Anyways, they had these crossbows. And, you know, according to the sources, these things were mass produced. And you had as many as 50,000 50, guys in an army with crossbows. So this is a devastating weapon. Just imagine 50,000 guys shooting their crossbow at once. Like, it, it, this army was badass. And they had a king that wanted to conquer the world. You had an army that couldn't be defeated. You know, so this conquest is steadily going. He's going very much like Hitler did and choosing one at a time. We can't defeat everybody at once. If they all join together, we can't defeat them. But if we defeat one at a time, then we can. And so slowly his army starts to roll over China. But at home, in his court, well, he inherited a court rife with intrigue. And you got guys like Lu Boy, guys like Li Si, women like his mother, Lady Zhao, who are all really sketchy. They all have tons of different agendas. And this kind of comes to a head with, well, a huge scandal. This is called the Loi Ai plot. Lao Ai? Lao Ai. Okay. Okay. And so Lu Boy, the minister of state, who has been ruling as regent, you know, he's been sleeping with the queen for, you know, God knows how long they've been lovers ruling the country together in secret while his son's, you know, her son's been on the throne as a puppet, you know, but as, as he starts to come into his own, he's leading armies, he's conquering other States. It's becoming clear that this guy is not a puppet. Like he, he's a force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. Lou boy decides that he wants to distance himself from Lady Zhao. And he decides that he, he wants to find a replacement for for himself, basically. Okay, so he's like trying to find a way out of this situation. Yep, and he finds a guy by the name of Lao Ai. Now, Lao Ai, according to the records of the Grand Historian, again, Sima Tian, Lao Ai was disguised as a eunuch and was able to enter the queen's chamber secretly under this disguise as a eunuch and he would pluck his hair and the two of them ended up getting along really, really well. And Lao Ai pretending to be a eunuch (laughs) fathers two sons (laughs) with the queen. So like, okay. So he's just like, yeah, I'm a eunuch. Don't worry about it. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I don't really quite... There, I'm, uh, there's a lot of cultural stuff I'm obviously missing and stuff, but yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So, and you know, I think it's, again, she is dowager. She can kind of do whatever the fuck she wants, right? Like Probably. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like that. Now, what got her into trouble here is that this Lao Ai fathers these two sons with her, 
and they have them in secret. She knows that these these kids are going to be rivals, potential rivals, threats to her son. And so they keep them secret. And they keep them secret for like, I think one was eight and one was 10 when the when they were finally discovered. But so Lao Ai has been, you know, he started as a eunuch, but as it went on, he he's no longer pretended to be a eunuch. He's actually been ennobled. He's <laughs> like a duke. Back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got better. <laughs> I got better. No, no one can question him because he's the, the queen's boyfriend. You know, so now he's at court. He's a duke or whatever. Marquis, it says here, uh, whatever the Chinese equivalent is. And he's kind of living it out openly as the queen's lover now. Okay. And it, what happened to Lu Boy? Is he gone? He is still running the state. He is still okay. minister of state. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> now, he, but here's what happens though. Okay. So Lao Ai, the queen's lover, the eunuch. The, the quote, air quotes eunuch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Supposed eunuch. Now, he is supposedly boasting at a dinner that he has fathered, fathered sons with the queen. <laughs> and I don't know if this is true or not. But anyways, the king, uh, Ying Jing, King Ying Jing, discovers this plot. And it seems like Lu Boy also discovered it. And Lao Ai also discovered that they had discovered it. So kind of everybody realized that shit was going down. <laughs> everybody's looking at each other like uh oh <laughs> but so what lao ai does is that he steals the royal seal and again we're talking you know china is this bureaucracy okay sure so this is like a very important item yes he steals the royal seal that can be used to levy troops and he raises a small army with this royal seal and he is going to attack the palace oh my god with the plan of replacing Ying Jing with himself or and with the one of these with one of his sons now Lu Boy Lu Boy has been in on this the whole time he's the one who set them up right he introduced them yeah he, that's right now when he learns that the royal seal has been stolen he kind of has to make a choice which side am I going to choose and he kind of knows that the people that kind of help these people get to power these usurpers, oftentimes they're the first ones to get off, right? Because they're like a witness or they know mm -hmm. like the intimacies of the plot, you know. So he Yes, just... they know where all the bodies are hidden and shit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Lu Boy decides to side with the king, King Jing. And he has an ambush prepared. The rebel troops attack the palace, but Lu Boy appears on the rampart with uh an army of crossbowmen and they massacre the rebels now. Okay. So if they have an army of crossbowmen sort of, are, are we right to assume that they, that he's prepared for this and shit? Yeah. Like we just talked about the crossbow being good for when you're prepared to fight. Yep. They were, this was an ambush. They were not okay. expecting the palace to be defended. The King was actually not there. The King was traveling. And so they were going to seize the palace while he was gone. But there's old Lou boy on the rampart. And then, these crossbowmen appear and just massacre the rebels. So, yeah, he switched sides. He knew it was going to happen. He switched sides. Now, he goes to the king and he tells him about all this thing. Now, Lao, Lao Ai, the eunuch, actually escapes the battle. And um, he's like one of the only people that escapes. There is a price of a million copper coins placed on his head if he is taken alive. Uh, eventually, he is betrayed. 
by one of his compatriots and he is delivered to the king. And so the king takes him and he basically has him drawn and quartered. He has five horses and each one runs in one direction and body is broken. And he makes the queen watch this. So he makes his mother come and watch this event. And while this is happening, uh, he has the two boys. He has them killed. Um, and they're strangled with a silken uh, handkerchief. Which is like the the classy way to, to kill royalty, right? Like to use a silk rope or a silk... Yeah, okay. Yep. Anyways, so, so there has been this epic kind of palace coup with his mother right at the he- center of it. But then the king gets back and he's like, little boy, why didn't you, surely you must have known about this. You introduced them. You know, you're, the, you're in charge of security for the whole state. Why, how could this happen? And he sentences Lou Boy to death. And Lou Boy steps up to him and says, None of, you would never be king if it wasn't for me. And, he's, and King Zhang says, excuse me? What, what the hell did you just say to me? And he says, I, I'm only speaking like a father would speak to his son. And so he reveals that he is actually his father. And um, he's been hiding it this whole time. Oh, shit. Now, is this true or is this like a power move, do we think? You know, it was just one of the thing, things about the records of the Grand Historian, Sumatian, is that he actually does contradict this in another chapter. But he was kind of writing a chapter for a different audience. So he was being commissioned by different royalty to like write something. So it, oh, okay. it, it's a very complicated source. Sure, now, sure. I'm choosing to go with it because it's just way a way more crazy and romantic, like Shakespearean kind of twist. And it's from this. It, he literally says that like, so this is from the source, but he does contradict it later. So who knows? Um, but yeah, so Lou boy, you know, and apparently this actually worked and uh, he's King Jang spares him. He's, he spares his life and he sentences his mother to house arrest and Lou boy to exile. She will spend the rest of her life in house arrest and Lou Boy goes on to commit suicide a year later by drinking poison. He died a broken man and um, the king never forgave him and never accepted him as his father. Um, So that was the end of Lou Boy. But he is replaced in 235 BC by Li Si. And this is, you know, Li Si has been waiting in the wings. He's been talking about rats, studying how (laughs) things work, you know? I mean, I wonder, I mean, I'm sure that he must have had some unseen influence in how all of this happened too, right? Like He must have. Well, who knows? I mean, we assume that he might have probably because of who he is. Now, so anyway, so after this first attack, obviously, you know, his mother's involved. We talked about that with Commodus and his sister being involved. You know, when your family tries to kill you, you get paranoid, right? That's sure. Just, so he, he's had all these people put to death and he starts having these nightmares and he's having this paranoia. His mother, you know, everyone around him, his father wasn't his father. His, you know, it's very confusing time for him. And he sees the ghosts of the people he's killed coming back to, to him in his dreams and swearing that they're going to take vengeance on him in the next life. And so he's kind of haunted by this, by his crimes. Mm-hmm. Every night of his life, he's kind of haunted by his crimes and why 
why do we think that he took that kind of approach like is this do we is this like how things were done is this like him like i'm trying to kind of parse that out as far as like the being haunted by the ghosts that no in terms of like making this choice to like order his soldiers to like commit these crimes and stuff like you know i think it was basically real politique just that okay we 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 don't want to feed these guys we don't want to care for them and they're going to slow us down like it it's really really shitty we just want their land and we don't want them on it so yeah we just want them to go away they're kind of in the way and if we let them live we might have to fight them again you know we can't we don't want to feed them we don't want to provide for them and we got we got bigger plans we got a battle to fight you know so we just got to move on do we think that lee c had an influence in this at all i'm not sure i don't have any evidence to suggest that he did but he might have. He he did go on campaign with him, I think. Um, hmm, okay. That first battle with Han, that was still when Lu Boy was in power. So he hadn't been completely under Li Si's you know, control yet. I, don't, I'm, I think at least. I'm not sure. But but anyway, so he's this great warrior king. And he, he's slowly conquering all these other states one by one. No, none of these people can stand up to his army. None of the states can stand up to him. Now he gets to the state of of Yan. Yan is the most northern state in the Warring Kingdoms. It's the one that touches like Siberia, Manchuria, and also Korea. So it's like the furthest northeast. Yan is not a very powerful state. They don't think they can defeat the Qin army, so they come up with a different strategy. Well, we don't have to defeat their army if we can just kill their leader. And so the leaders of Yan hired two assassins. And they came up with this plan to try and assassinate Ying Zheng. And what they did is they brought the head of a defector Qin general to the court and offered it up as like, you know, a, a token of, you know, we killed your enemy. Here's a present, you know, here's the head of your enemy. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's a cool now, present. It's a nice present, right? Now, so one assassin has the head. The other assassin has a map, and the map is supposed to be of his conquests. And this is a very, very nice gift to get such a nice map, and it's very flattering to kind of recognize him as the king of all these places that he's just recently conquered. But concealed within the map, it's rolled up in a scroll. Concealed within it is a dagger. And so the plan is that the first assassin is going to approach and show him the map. And the second assassin is going to approach and show him the head. And while the while he's distracted with the head, he's gonna the, the first assassin will unfurl the rest of the map and grab the dagger and attack him. Now, after the Lao Ai fiasco and the rebellion, one of the things that King Zhang did was that he outlawed all weapons being carried in his court. So he has no no bodyguards. <laughs> No one in the Damn. court is armed. That's some high-level paranoia, right? And not oh only God. that, not only that, dude. Only he can call for guards. Only he has the authority to. If anybody else calls for the guards, they are not going to come. Only he can call for the guards. And so we get this hilarious scene, this assassination attempt. Well, <laughs> so the the guy with the head now he 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 loses his nerve and he he is frozen with fear. He cannot move. So the first assassin tries to do both things. He, he tries to distract him with the head while also unfurling the dagger. But 
He is not taken by surprise. He sees the dagger. He's able to parry. He gets out of the way. And they're having like a, a duel in the court. And all the advisors are there watching. Nobody, nobody's doing anything. And he's unarmed. And, you know, he's dodging all these blows. He gets to his sword. And he's, able, he's dueling this assassin who has a dagger. And eventually he kills the assassin. And in front of the whole court. And the guards are like sitting there outside listening to the whole thing but they can't come in because <laughs> oh man yeah so he survives this attempt but anyway so you know the, the paranoia starts getting worse and worse after this and slowly but surely one by one all these other states are falling and eventually there's only one left and it's that state of Chu the, the state that um that Li Si is from and they're you know, this is just kind of a side note, but there, there's like this huge xenophobic fervor that starts rising up in Chin, and they start trying to kick out all the foreigners. And Lee Si is a foreigner, and so he comes up with this great defense why we need the foreigners. The foreigners are key to survival, and he's able to convince them not to do it. You know, like so. Okay, that's cool. It, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but anyways. There is a big showdown with this final state of Chu. These numbers certainly sound ridiculous, but you know everything in China is a little bit bigger, so it might not be that far out of the realm of possibility, but it's total war. Everything is mobilized for this final showdown with the Chu, and he shows up apparently with a million man army. So are these are these like primarily like foot like um or do they have like a lot of cavalry or like what kind of like what are we like looking at here? Well, yeah. So the order of battle for the Chin army was, all right. So the first, this is from the terracotta army. So we're not sure exactly how this would look on the battlefield, but they arranged this army very precisely when it was buried. So this is probably their order of battle. But so the first line is like a light infantry. And this is kind of like a shock troop. These guys were probably their best fighters. They're kind of light, lightly armored, but very mobile, probably have, like a crossbow and a melee weapon and they would ditch their crossbow after they fired it. Um, so that was the first kind of sh- shock troops that would engage the enemy, get them pinned down. Now the next, the next wave is a column and these pits that they found are arranged in three columns. So three columns of heavy infantry. And this was the real meat of the army. This was the, the battering ram of the army. So the, the light troops would go out, get them kind of pinned down, get them into skirmishes, start exchanging fire while the heavy infantry advances in column. And behind the heavy infantry, you had a mass of crossbowmen. So I think that basically the infantry would come out, form a line. And basically the, the goal was to not let the opposing troops get past that line while your crossbowmen just shot the crap out of them. And at the end of the column, you had chariots, and these chariots were armed with crews that had crossbows and spears. Oh, shit. And then at the end, the very end, you had cavalry. And so this was like kind of once the enemy was engaged, I think these cavalry, and it's the very end of the calm, I think they would go around to flank them, go, come around from behind. So I think that's their order of battle. It's very intricate kind of uh, combined arms. This is combined arms. And they had they had some artillery pieces too. Some of these chariots would have like giant crossbows on them, you know. So they they had yeah, artillery. Shit. Okay, that's hella dope. Yeah, dude, this okay. is a badass fucking army. Like, 
but yeah, this this is one of those armies. Like this is like Caesar's army. And I was thinking about that and like the chariot thing too, and like how I mean, I feel like having a chariot with a giant crossbow on it is way cooler than whatever the Romans were doing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, they they had kind of similar things. They had ballista. Okay, that's right. I remember now. Yeah, but yeah. basically the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But they didn't have handheld crossbows. Romans didn't have that. Yeah. This is before Rome. You know, this is 250 BC. Um, Mm -hmm. So Rome doesn't really come into their own for another, you know, 200 years or so. This is more like the Greek. This is the time of Alexander. This is after Alexander. That that Hellenistic period we talked about in the Jewish episode, the Jewish war, where the Greek culture is melding with all those other cultures in the Middle East, Persian, Mm -hmm. Jewish, you know, Egyptian. So that's what's happening in Europe. But this is what's happening in in China. They have these huge armies with crossbows, million, you know, so like the tech level and the scale of this is just kind of like a next step up from what's happening in other parts of the world, at least according to the sources. And after the discovery of the Terracotta army, it kind of those sources are more legitimate now. You know, they they found 40,000 bronze weapons in in the terracotta tomb 40,000 gosh you know is and that they have only excavated maybe a quarter of it so and it, is this ongoing work oh yeah cool you know one thing about archaeology that i kind of forgot to mention in some of the previous episodes but um it's kind of a cool thing that archaeologists have kind of after schleman and that debacle they kind of came up with a a way of of recognizing that that the people that are going to come after them are going to have better techniques more advanced ways of doing things, better understandings. And so instead of just destroying the whole site or excavating the whole site, they only excavate half of it or a quarter of it, and they want to leave other parts of it for future archaeologists to come along and excavate. Okay. That's kind of how it works. It's kind of like a un, kind of a nice little understanding with the future. That uh, is cool. Yeah. Because they understand the past so well that they can understand the future. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I think, cool. it, again, because of Schliemann and how archaeology started you know it um anyways so but this terracotta army it's more it's more complicated you know the tomb itself is it's a pyramid it's larger than the great pyramid of of giza it's buried jeez dude that's so fucking dope yeah to (laughs) to excavate this thing i mean the chinese government has all kinds of weird motives anything they do has a weird kind of motive with it i feel like that's true of any government just saying (laughs) It is, but in other countries, you know, you you could have like universities and stuff just go out and sure, and, sure, sure. You know, so they have their own kind of thing. So it is hard to to do stuff if it's you know whatever reason if it's going to make them look bad or it's going to make them embarrassed or it's going to make the past look too glorious or you know whatever. I don't know what they're thinking, but there is that element. But at the same time, this has got to be the most difficult archaeological site to excavate in the entire world. So they don't want to fuck it up and. Mm-hmm. Like the tomb itself, like we're, we're not going to get into it just yet, but the tomb itself, you know, it has not been excavated. The terracotta army is surrounding the tomb. It's like a mile away from it. It's like this whole necropolis, this massive necropolis that has an army surrounding it. Like So, okay. So like it's un, like, so we we're underground and we're in like a cavern or some shit. It's actually buried. Now, yes, there is an underground cavern. So the chamber. So again, this is from the grand historian. Uh, this is always thought to have been mythic and legendary. Now, apparently, he had 250,000 slaves digging this massive hole, I guess, basically. And then they cast the whole, they cast the entire hole in bronze, which, again, sounds ridiculous. But, you know. That's so much bronze. It, it would have been an tr- unbelievable amount of bronze. Now, after that, the bronze was shaped into the shape of China. 
and the rivers and lakes were said to be filled with mercury. And there was a system in place that allowed it to flow and be recycled. And as it was doing that, there was uh, mechanical toys or inventions, gadgets that would, would sing. It would be like a little chorus of like, it, it just sounded crazy. Yeah. And then the entire, um, the sky of it or the, the roof was encrusted with precious gems to make it look like stars. <laughs> I mean, this sounds pretty badass. Like this is definitely something I might put in one of my D&D games. But like... <laughs> yeah, dude. And it's been sealed, you know. And so we, we could talk about the tomb a little bit later. But um... Okay, cool, cool. But anyways, yeah. So basically, King Zhang, he shows up with this million man army, according to the sources. And the generals of Yan, or, or of Chu, they don't think they can defeat this army. And they start withdrawing. They don't realize that the Qin are preparing to attack while they're withdrawing. So they, they think that they're just going to you know, find a more defensible location, easy kind of withdrawal, not fight a battle. But the Qin were preparing to attack. So as soon as they start withdrawing, the Qin army charges them. And it's, it just becomes a massacre. The Chu army was supposed to have lost like 30,000 people killed. The Chu are crushed, and Ying Zhang has conquered all seven of the warring states. And he, he is the first guy to do this, and he has united China under his rule. And he takes this opportunity to christen himself Qin Shi Quan. <laughs> Very cool. means like the august or divine emperor of Qin, the, the first divine ruler of China, basically. So this is a cool theme that we see. Like when you become emperor, you're also like, I'm also God, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is something we can talk about. So in Chinese uh, civilization, there is this idea of the mandate of heaven. And this is still around, believe it or not. And this is kind of analogous to the divine right of kings in Europe. Mm -hmm. where, But what's interesting about this is that it goes both ways. And so Chinese philosophers have oftentimes rebuked the king or taken away his right of rulership because he's broken the contract. He's broken the mandate of heaven. It has to go both ways. It can't okay. just like so that, that, that's, you know, it's very Confucian. Power is a two way street. If we want things to be harmonious, then we have to have agreements that are good for both parties. It can't be one or the other. Right. Oh, yeah. That's in line with what I understand about it. Yeah. And, you know, the previous kind of what we would call empires, the Zhou emperor empire, they were always kings. He is the first guy to use this term emperor. He invents it and he is not going to be the last. Everybody else after him is going to use this term. He invents it. He is, you know, this is the Qin dynasty. Well, this is probably where the word China comes from. Hmm. And he's able to unite all these people that have been fighting it out for literally hundreds of years. They have a similar culture, similar government, similar language. And he does this through like pretty brutal tactics, like military tactics, as we've seen, right? Absolutely. Ruthless conquest. But yet at the same time, you know, he's he's brought peace, you know, so it's this double edged sword, you know, like it's he brought peace. But God, it sure was a high price to pay. And now that he has become the first emperor of China, you know, he's still haunted by his nightmares every night. So he starts to think, well, I, I need, I'm the most powerful man in the world now. I rule the world. But when I die, I'm, I'm defenseless. 
And so he starts preparing his army. You know, this badass army that's been with him the whole time, just like Caesar, completely dependent on this army for his power. They've conquered the whole world. They've never lost a battle. Well, he's going to take this army with him into the next life. And that's when he starts building the Terracotta army. So was he, like, did he, like, kill all of those soldiers that the statues represented? No, 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 no. Okay. No, I think they were just modeled after his army. And like I said, the, each one is unique. So it does seem like they were actually crafted after a real soldier, perhaps. Not sure mm -hmm. if that's true or not. Other, other people in Chinese history have, have built terracotta warriors. It, it had been a thing, but they had never been full size. They were always miniature. Do we know like what the like kind of tradition about this surrounds? Like, is is it kind of like a like a the the myth of the golem or something? Is this like something that's thought to be like you know kind of like a protective thingy or like? I mean, obviously, in the case of the emperor, like yeah, that was literally what he wanted it for. But it was sort of in this like afterlife kind of way. Was was that part of like the tradition like back then? Do you think? I'm honestly not prepared to speak intelligently on that, but oh, okay. I I would think so that these these vessels could could be enough to hold the spirit of the warrior you know like sure it, yeah i think that that would be an interest like that interesting territory to look into too some of these like traditions about like these artifacts and what they mean like culturally to these places too oh absolutely interesting enough now i think 120 pits have been found at the terracotta site you know surrounding the pyramid one of them they found this is a huge huge pit i believe it had 20,000 sets of stone armor and there's no soldiers or anything else but the armor that's just kind of poured into a pit and what they're thinking was that this was perhaps armor for the soldiers whose bodies were destroyed who who were who were maimed and disfigured or you know destroyed in artillery fire or whatever you know this was a way of appeasing the spirits to in the next life to arm them even if their bodies were gone interesting yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure their relationship with the spirit world and all how that all worked. But so anyways, so Chin Shi Huan has conquered all of China and he starts to think of what else he can conquer. And, you know, we talked about the Yellow River being this dangerous, one of the most dangerous rivers in the world. Well, let's build a giant fucking canal to make it less dangerous. And okay. so he does that. That's his first big project. Now, a lot of people are dying in this. And it also should be said that all those states that he defeated, well, he enslaved every single person that he didn't kill in their, in their armies. So they were either dead or enslaved every single person. So like his army, like they had tons of slaves, like each guy would have tons of slaves themselves. Like they were super rich. You know, they, they had defeated all these other countries and they were, they were all rich. They had tons of slaves, but they, they decide to go on these giant building projects. And so, well, you know, this canal is great, but you know what? These barbarians from China, from Russia and Mongolia, they're a pain in the fucking ass. And they're always coming down here. Let's build a giant fucking wall and keep them out. <laughs> and, and you know what? There's the, the price, the cost is of no concern. Just do it. Here's a blank check. Do it. And so construction of the Great Wall begins. And the human cost of this thing is... I don't even know what to say. Like it, they think maybe 750,000 people died building it. Damn. And most of the bodies were, well, I don't know if most, but oftentimes the bodies would be incorporated into the wall itself. So they would just be dumped into the, the rubble in between, you know, the superstructure. 
It's like in that Highwayman song about the guy that falls into the dam. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought about when I heard it. And so, yeah, so he's building this giant fucking wall and it's hard to argue with this accomplishment because this is, I mean, this is probably one of the greatest accomplishments in human engineering that's Oh, ever. it's certainly considered so today, right? Yeah. And like, you can go there, you can walk the whole thing and then, you know, it, it really is next level shit and you can see it from space, you know? It, yeah, for sure. This is, this is BC, you know, yeah. he's building this thing. But as time goes on, his nightmares get worse and worse and worse. And he decides that, well, yeah, he's building this giant army to protect him in the afterlife, but that's not enough. Like, I'm the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful man that's ever lived. I shouldn't have to die. Why should I die? Yeah. And so he decides that he doesn't want to die. Okay, so I want to point out, like, just real quick. Okay, so this is somebody that's like, you know, they've lost their... They lost their father when they were young, right? When they were 13 and like mm -hmm. had to, you know, deal with the stress of like all of the rulership and all that stuff. And then her mother was not a very loving and reliable parent. Okay. And you then know, he's, he's, he's raised at the court. You know? Yeah, no, for sure. And so, yeah, I kind of, I guess I could side, I could kind of see like where this obsession of, with death, I mean, especially after all of the crimes he did and stuff and like, yeah. yeah. And I think that's a big part of it is that he was afraid of this karmic retribution in the next life. And he tried everything that he could to prepare himself for that with his army, but he still didn't think it was enough, you know? Yeah. Well, I wonder, to, I mean, to what extent, like, is this just him trying to, like, assuage his own guilt, right? And, like, not being able yeah. to do it. <laughs> like... Oh, yeah. No, I think there's there's definitely part of that. You know, this man's accomplished everything. And, and, and by the way, when he when he takes the title emperor... He dons this veil of stars and it's just like the coolest looking like headdress. Like it's kind of like a square hat with like, like beads coming down in the front and the back. It just looks freaking badass. I have but... to look this up right now. <laughs> yeah, dude, a veil of stars. It's just freaking sweet. Like, so yeah, he's rocking around in this veil of stars. He's, um... <laughs> he's got his cool hat. I feel like being a ruler or a priest or whatever, like it all, like authority involves a fancy hat, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure he had a nice mustache too. But so now that he controls all of China, we've had this guy, Li Si, sitting in the background. And now, now he gets to kind of come to the forefront with this philosophy that he's invented, that he's refined. And now he gets to put it to test. He's been watching the rats. He's come up with a <laughs> kind of philosophy for how things work in the world. I'm looking at a picture of this veil of stars. And by the way, it is fucking dope as hell. And yeah, I super dude. want one. I know, right? <laughs> That'd be a cool look to rock around the house. <laughs> All right, dude. So he comes up with this new complete form of government. And complete as in totalitarian. Okay. <laughs> complete control <laughs> i mean literally complete control everything they want to control your thoughts they want to control what you eat you know where you shit you know it, it, literally everything and lee c has this really pessimistic view on humanity that humans are selfish self-serving greedy and unreliable and all of these kind of trappings that we kind of like to think of these noble trappings well that's just way of making us feel better about how nasty you really are and so for him this is not um a contradiction this is just reality there is you know 
So, I mean, I think, I think for us today, he is a very odious figure because this ideology that we're going to talk about is incredibly uh, tyrannical and incredibly despotic. Um, but he's one of these historical figures that is just a man larger than his time as far as his, his philosophy and the fact that it actually got put into use and, and we could see how these things turned out and, uh, anyway, so we'll just talk a little bit about it. So I have a, a definition of legalism here. So this is from Britannica. It says, The legalists believe that political institutions should be modeled in response to the realities of human behavior and that human beings are inherently selfish and short-sighted. Thus, sho- social harmony cannot be assured through the recognition by the people of the virtue of their ruler, but only through strong state control and absolute obedience to authority. Okay. That that's fun. Yeah, I was like but I don't I don't know if that that doesn't sound like the reasoning behind it, but it sounds like the result of it. But I could be wrong about that. This is a little outside of my wheelhouse. Like Well, some of the features of this system is a system of laws that rigidly prescribe punishments and rewards for specific behaviors. And so this is almost like a rule of law. You know, we talk about Republic in some of the other other episodes. What is Republic? Rule of law. This is kind of like the rule of law, but these are not laws. These are rules. These are arbitrary rules. The rules of, it's the rule of rules. (laughs) It's the rule of rules. Yeah. And the, the, the crime does not fit the punishment, you know, you steal a loaf of bread, you're maimed for life. That, that's like that. Those two don't, they don't connect, right? Well, I mean, not in the intuitive way that most cultures seem to do things. I mean, like I, I, you see like evidence in history sometimes of this being like a, a punishment for theft of having a hand cut off. And I, it depends on the society, but like, yeah, it seems a little harsh, right? Like to us, to our, to our modern, our modern conceptions of shit, right? Like, I mean, who knows, right? Well, yeah, this like this stuff is very offensive to our modern sensibilities. Some of the stuff they're going to get into here, um, but at the time, and for, I guess for lots of the other places in the world, you know, they might have a different perspective on this kind of stuff. And so, I mean, just kind of our Western kind of foreign barbarians, as they would call us, yeah, we can't really understand the scale of this stuff or the context, you know, or the reality of it, or we're just naive, you know. Um, this is how things actually work, you know? I'm, yeah, I'm thinking again, too, of like what we talked about in the beginning of the episode about human nature and stuff. And like, I don't know. Yeah. Is it is it universal to, to maybe be like a little bit abhorrent of these things, too, though, in some ways? I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like the case could be made that it is. Yeah. Right. Like, even even if you're in a society where like this is like the case and this is going on, I think that maybe on some level it still is like offensive to you maybe just aren't like aware of it or like i don't know i'm (laughs) to think about that some more yeah no doubt and you know this is a a complicated figure because oh i will just continue a little bit more right so li shi comes comes to power he's the minister of state quinchi huang just hands him power to just run the state basically Well, like they've been homies forever now right and like he's been like with his by his side for like a long ass time and like yep even after like with him the whole time yeah his dad died and then his other like real dad 
was exile. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He, yep. This guy's been there quietly, just in the background, not talking, just, you know, talking when no one else is around. (laughs) Watching Uh, the rats. (laughs) (laughs) Watching the rats. But now, now that they control everything, he gets a chance to put his kind of philosophy into motion and they usher in, yeah, this, this legalist, um, government or regime. And, you know, one of the things that, Li Shi was really concerned was with was that people, even if you told people the truth, it, when they told the truth to somebody else, it would get distorted a little bit. And when they told it to somebody else, it would get distorted even more. And so the truth itself isn't reliable in the masses because the masses are unreliable, right? Therefore, we must control the message completely. We can't allow... <laughs> We can't allow rumors to spread, basically. We can't allow anything else than the official narrative. And anything else is punishable by death. <laughs> and so they have this epic pogrom on Confucian scholars and Confucian monasteries and temples. And they destroy every single text they can find, literally. Every single book, every single text is burned. The only ones that are preserved are things like um, husbandry, horticulture, architecture, engineering, medicine. So, okay, this is... And only one copy of each work. Only one copy in the Imperial Library. Everything else is to be destroyed. So, okay, like, this is, like, it's so funny, right? Okay, so we're going to burn all of the fucking books right <laughs> like, everything oh that is i wonder like how much good stuff was like lost right like i know it kind of reminds me of the the library of alexandria getting destroyed mm-hmm. but on like a way bigger scale probably on a right way like bigger scale yeah. yeah china's a way bigger place yeah than the library like a of way way yeah. bigger and like with what so much more probably history too like i don't i mean i'm not quite sure about the details of the history of like you know the library of alexandria but like china's got such deep historical roots and like they already had this like you know bureaucracy established like they had records they had i mean it must have been a disgusting amount of information like lost in this madness it's fucking madness right and this for this reason the burning of books he was is is hated by a lot of people confused by scholars you know he he tried to try to eradicate free thought basically with this complete power this complete regime you know and there's more you know anybody who was caught hiding these books they're killed their families killed their families families killed you know mm-hmm. the like the most severe punishment for these books and you know these confucian scholars they didn't want to give up their texts you know that I think Confucius was about 200 years before this period, 250 years before this period. But, you know, and so they, he had all these guys killed. You know, he, he buried, he buried 460 Confucian scholars alive. Just because they were Confucian scholars. Yeah. Because they they, they knew, they knew about Confucius. That makes sense. It's like burning books only. It's burying people. Yeah. He, they they did not like Confucianism. Legalism and Confucianism are kind of, they have a similar goal control or or harmony in a way but the way of getting there is completely different and i think the the outlook is one is incredibly cynical and one i think is accepting of humanity and its flaws and it actually celebrates some of its strengths Mm -hmm. 
it's not all bad. You know, there are good things too. Sure. So yeah. Yeah. And so these, these two kind of philosophies were kind of at odds and, and really embraced this, this one and tried to get rid of the other really, really tried really hard to get rid of it, but that's hard to do. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about this too, like just real quick, like, I mean, as far as I understand Confucianism, which is not very well at all, I will say, but I brushed up a little bit on it for this episode. And like, I think that maybe one of the things that they were so um, like opposed to in a way, or just like philosophically like different on was that, okay, so with legalism, it's like this top down thing, right? It's like the state's going to dictate to you what's moral, where you can like shit, who you can fuck, whatever it is, right? Like, um, and with Confucianism, like it's it's more of like a bottom up approach, right? The the thought was that each family unit was like the smallest kind of unit of the state, and so yeah, to I ins- think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, ensure that like there is like this more this kind of like moral integrity in the family unit. You can look at it at larger and larger scales as as a society. And I think that this is something that um, hasn't really gone away. I think that there's still a lot of people that feel like this is the way that it worked. Okay, so you have a quote here from uh, Sim. Uh, Sima Kyun. Yeah. Now, so, uh, you know, we're, we're talking bad about legalism and all, all of the crimes that were committed. And, and there was a lot. I mean, I don't even have the numbers for the amount of people that died in these these building projects, but it, it's in the millions. I mean, it, this is huge, huge tyranny on, on a scale in the ancient world. that's just kind of un, unheard of. But also there are benefits. There are positives that come with this. This is when China becomes China. If, if he hadn't conquered it all, it might be more like Europe where there's different states you know different countries you know before it kind of was like europe yeah and and not only that he introduced a standardized form of writing and and this is probably the biggest one and you know we just we say that as like just something like a you know like a feather in his cap or something but if you really think about what that means it's one of the biggest accomplishments that you could possibly do yeah that's huge that's very powerful and the characters that he standardized are still around and that you know, that kind of coordinating that he did back then, two and a half thousand years ago, well, it it stuck. Not only that, he introduced currency and standardized it. And again, this is another thing. It's really easy to just say those words and be like, oh, okay. I've heard of a lot of other rulers that did that too. Cool. But if you think about it, this is a huge accomplishment. And the Chinese coin, they had a copper coin that had a it's a you know circular coin, but it has a square hole in the middle, mm-hmm. and so you could string these things together, and you could you know wear them around you and shit. But you know this introduction of currency, we talked about the barter economy in the Bronze Age episode. The the efficiency that this brings, the the level of efficiency, it's almost like um, exponential. Yeah, you know the the amount of economy that you can get out of introducing a standardized currency. All of a sudden, it's like what the Europeans are still trying to do with their currency. They, you know, yeah. there's so much benefit from this, and he did it. And so, the, you know, there are some benefits. And so, um, we do have a quote from Simichan here. He said, "Quote: A new age is inaugurated by the emperor. Rules and measures are rectified. The myriad of things are set in order. Human affairs are made clear, and there is harmony between father and son." So. I think all that is true. Yeah. Things were clear. Things were set in order. There were rules and measures rectified, all right. Yeah. And there was harmony, but it, at what cost, right? Like, Well, yeah. And like, at what point is it just order for the sake of order? Like, is society really, I mean, like, they, like you mentioned, there's like these great strides being made, but like, in terms of like the lives of the people, like living in this system, like, it's almost like, fuck, who cares? Like, if they're miserable, like, none of that really matters, right? 
Yeah. And you got to, all right. So put yourself into a citizen in ancient China here. All right. So you, you've just lived through this horrible warring period. Your whole life has been war, but all of a sudden the wars have ended, but instead of the soldiers coming back, well, they're all gone. They're all enslaved or they're killed. They don't come back. Even though the war is over, they'd never come back. That's really sad. Yeah. And the countryside, well, not only that, the king, the I mean, the emperor, he needs people to build his tomb. He needs people to build the Great Wall. He needs people to build this fucking canal. Well, and so they're taking everybody. They're taking all, everybody. And the countryside is is robbed of youth. And by the end of his reign, you know, he had this incredibly prosperous period after the war. But as he descends into madness and as his power becomes even more and more complete, the prosperity of the country and the happiness of the people it just deteriorates and um, it deteriorates much like his mental health deteriorates, which we will get to. But anyway, so it's a little bit more about legalism. I mean, there's a lot more we could talk about. You know, there are tons of quotes from the annals of the grand historian that talk about some of these punishments, like, you know, executions for, you know, for having sex with someone you're not allowed to have sex with. Like, I, I don't know, like it's, it's, it's hard for us to kind of understand what this must've been life, but, must have been like but i think the this probably was one of the most horrific times to be just an average chinese person yeah i know i mean that's it's really sad too and it's like really interesting to think about like yeah the the juxtaposition there of like this kind of like you know these quote unquote you know great and actually yeah they are great accomplishments in in that in that sense the historical sense of what that word means great but like um yeah the with this juxtaposition of like it there's always the old saying like you can have everything like in quotes like when people say like oh they've got everything like whatever our fucking society considers to be like success right like oh you have a whatever the, the, you got a tesla you yeah you've got the you've got the house that you're supposed to want to have and the car that you're supposed to want to have and the and the lifestyle that you're supposed to want to have um sure. and all of a sudden that's just supposed to like do it for you and it's like doesn't seem like at all that's the case right like yeah well and i think with people that get into a position of power like this it kind of has its own logic to it and we can never understand it because we are just little peons right sure i mean we're not maybe there i mean yeah well people that are like super hungry for power and stuff like there must be some kind of like a a psychological matrix right like i don't i'm I'm not a psychologist i don't want to like say like oh he's a megalomaniac or whatever. i don't know but like well i think people raised in a royal court are just kind of sociopaths by the nature of because their you have to be to survive <laughs> like, yeah okay <laughs> i wonder to what extent that continues often oh god i yeah. think about that a lot <laughs> so anyways at this point in the Emperor Chen's life, he decides that this isn't enough and that he's going to find the secret to immortality. And he's prepared his army for the next life and he's prepared this amazing tomb. But why? Why should he Why should he die? And he brings all the best alchemists, all the best philosophers, and he asks them that question. Why should I, Quin Shi Hong, the first emperor of China, the divine ruler, why should I die? Why? God, that would be a shitty interview to be called to. <laughs> I know, right? And so his, you know, these doctors are trying to come up with now. All right. So one thing about China is that it has a large abundance of rare earth minerals. Mm -hmm. And one of those is mercury. Mercury in the ancient world, obviously there's nothing like it, right? It's super fucking neat, right? 
it's so cool. And the Chinese alchemists saw how mercury was the only substance that could transmute gold. It was the only one. And, you know, that's how you could, you know, smelt gold. And so there's something about this, this metal that's magical. And I mean, you could see why they would think that, right? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, like, uh, yeah, I, I'm not too well versed in like um, Eastern alchemy, but I know even in like Western alchemy, mercury is like super, it's, it's, it's symbolically important, at least. Yeah. I mean, they felt like this is clearly a special substance. It seems to have magical properties. And if it can transmute gold, the eternal substance, well, maybe you can put that into your body and you can get some of that magic from it, right? Like that's the thing. Yeah, drink it up. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean this, this was not uncommon. I, mean, I don't think that. I think that they even still like thought it was like a good idea to eat mercury. Like when they were doing the like Lewis and Clark expedition, I think that they were actually able to track where they went based on like you know the trail of mercury left behind, and they were given like a bunch of these like mercury pills to take with them because it was like here, here's some free vitamins for y'all. And, keep like, you, yeah, keep you healthy. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that I don't think I think it was pretty recently when we figured out how bad it is for you. <laughs> yeah, it's 20th century. Okay, so he, everybody loves to eat mercury. We got that. <laughs> right. All right. So yes. Yeah, so the Chinese alchemists were very much obsessed with this with this metal, and the emperor is coming to them and demanding them to come up with some elixir of immortality, and so they they fix on mercury as their best bet. You know. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> they actually come up with two things. So they have a regime of sex, lots and lots of sex with different partners. It's supposed to be <laughs> good for the vitality. <laughs> so that was step one of the regimen. And step two, though, was these mercury uh, pills. What the Chinese alchemists did is they, they bound it to soluble elements. They knew how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so they started giving him these mercury pills. And I think he was taking something like one a day of these things for um, the, like the last 13 years of his life. And so I don't know how much this really has to do with, you know, his descent into madness. But, you know, it, it seems to be pretty good corroborative evidence that might have contributed to yeah, it. Yeah, no, definitely. But anyway, so he's having sex with all these women, you know, and he's eating mercury and he is just starting to kind of lose it a little bit. Yeah, you know? it sounds starting... like sounds like shit's kind of getting crazy for him. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> if it wasn't already crazy for him. <laughs> and meanwhile, old Lacey is enacting this crushing totalitarian regime onto the country. And it's all kind of in the name of this god emperor. But the god emperor is... Sure. is naked you know he, he's not wearing any clothes at this point and so it's this really uncomfortable situation for everybody and as time goes on the emperor gets sicker and sicker and it's not working you know the sex isn't working and the pills aren't working and so he needs something else again he calls on the alchemists and he has this physician and i don't have his name here but this physician tells him about this magical island and this is where the immortals live now we don't know how to get to this island <laughs> but it's a place that you can go <laughs> yes now if you give me a, a whole fleet an army i can find i it. can leave and <laughs> <laughs> so anyways <laughs> he you know authorizes this huge expedition to find this magical island where these immortals live so they can bring back the elixir of eternal life 
And, you know, they're sending thousands of men and women, almost like a colony, kind of colony ship out there to, like, find it. And they never come back. Hmm. <laughs> no one ever comes back, and which is weird because the people who did, you know, the people who did come back or the people that failed him, well, they all died. Yeah, so, so that's fucking weird. Like, <laughs> yeah. everything's super cool in this place, right? Like, you know, this society is, I mean, it's very orderly, right? But, like, <laughs> it's very orderly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the trains run on time <laughs> but uh yeah so that that is that's super weird that they'd be like oh yeah can i have like a bunch of boats and i'll like take all of the people that i know on them and like we'll just go look for this immortal island um and it, yeah they took like a, a bunch of like <laughs> you know royal youths and you know beautiful concubines with them that <laughs> were just trying to get out of town. where do you think they went you know, I don't know where they thought the island was. I- I'm not 100% sure. But so anyways, the expedition failed. I think it was like in the ocean in the direction of Japan. Pretty sure. Yeah, okay. Um, the expedition fails. They never come back. And, you know, he sends a bunch of spies out to try and find out what happened to it. And <laughs> one of them comes back and tells him that the expedition uh, failed because they were blocked by a race of giant sea monsters or giant fishmen that lived in the sea <laughs> and they wouldn't let the expedition go through. Oh my God. Okay. And so the emperor kind of realizes this is why, this is why they didn't come back. Can I read this quote? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is Emperor uh, Kun Shi Huang. I've spoken to the leaders of the expedition and now know why it failed. My ships were blocked by a race of fearsome sea creatures, but I shall go myself to the coast and slay these beasts with a giant crossbow. (laughs) (laughs) And he did. So that's cool. Like, I mean, he still got the fire. Like, he still wants to, like, get out there and and do it on the front lines and stuff. And this is one thing about mercury psychosis is that apparently there are several stages to it. And like, you know, it, when, when it gets into your body, it attacks the nervous system. So yeah. it, and it eventually attacks your brain. That's where all the damage is being done is to your brain. So it's permanent, you know. But apparently you become very talkative and then very confrontational. Yeah. Some of the symptoms of mercury poisoning, like this is from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Uh, anxiety, depression, irritability, memory problems, numbness pathologic shyness <laughs> so like all kinds of and then um with advanced mercury poisoning they might have um hearing and speech difficulties lack of coordination muscle weakness nerve loss in hands and face trouble walking vision changes spiraling down to like all kinds of like cognitive things so yeah be careful about what seafood y'all are eating out there <laughs> <laughs> be careful about what you know elixirs of immortality you're ingesting as well yeah exactly if you're gonna be ingesting elixirs of immortality which i feel like there's a lot on the market and they're oh, there's probably a lot, all yeah. super accurate and will definitely <laughs> <laughs> probably all well, totally real <laughs> be aware of whatever elixirs you choose to drink i don't know but so yeah anyways <laughs> The Emperor Chen decides that he is going to have one more tour of his kingdom. And on the way, you know, this is on the way to the coast so he can fight the sea creatures, the sea monsters. And he, he has a giant crossbow commissioned for him. And But, you know, as they're traveling through the country, this was once, you know, really prosperous kingdoms. And while, the, yeah, they were fighting wars and shit, they were still had huge populations, you know, way bigger than anything in Europe. You know, like, well... On this tour through the countryside, it is—it's ravaged. It's despoiled. The fields are—they're unladen, and 
there's just not enough people left to continue any form of prosperous civilization because the, the emperor has stolen them all for his wars and for his building projects. And so this, this final march to the sea, this final trip to the seas through this despoiled country with this insane man and no one can do anything about it. It reminded me kind of of Hitler, actually, just someone who's clearly lost his shit, but because he is the you know autocratic ruler, yeah. no one can question him. Yeah. So anyways, he gets to the coast and um, he wades out into the water with his crossbow and he starts shooting. He hits a bunch of them. I think he... He hit every single shot he fired, and um, they they yielded after that. So he won the battle with the sea monsters. <laughs> <laughs> like the entire court, the entire court, you know, with Li Shi, you know, and his his son, you know, they're they're watching on the on the shore, and each time he fires, you know, he's he's bragging about he just slew one of their champions, and they all have to clap, you know. Oh God. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about Nero too, because I'm feeling a lot of Nero vibes on here. <laughs> it's a little bit Nero-y, yeah. It, it definitely is, yeah. So this is kind of the last hurrah. On the way back to the capital, um, he does he dies, and our our boy Li Si, of course, had a palace intrigue in the works. The emperor had prepared his oldest son to take power, but Li Si decided that he would have his youngest son be the king, and they would get rid of the oldest son. And then he could take power and keep ruling with this younger son. Sure, that makes sense. So yeah, so Lee C actually outlived him, and uh, there is this kind of palace coup, and this this descends into basically a civil war, and the emperor is interned in his. Are tomb. we sure about that? Like, I mean, I guess that we have we haven't unearthed it yet, but like that, yeah, that's that would be interesting. Well, this is according to sure, the grand sure. historian. All of this is according to him, but we know some stuff from archaeology. That's our other source, archaeology for this, and. So the terracotta army itself, it appears that it was destroyed by rioters. When it was excavated, they were not in the positions they are now. They were not standing in tension. The entire thing was a mess. That pit I talked about with the uh, stone armor in it, some of that stone armor was scorched with intense flame. So it seems like there was almost like a battle going on, like outside the tomb or something. Like that's kind of what it seems like from the archaeology. Fascinating. Now, the tomb itself, it has never been opened. And it is said, according to the Grand Historian again, that all the engineers and craftsmen that built this thing, well, they were sealed inside of it because they knew the secret of how to get Stan in. That's standard operating procedure for building these things, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is a pyramid. This is bigger. This is an actual pyramid. Now, it's not... Okay, maybe that's not accurate. But if you took the Great Pyramid of Egypt and you slice off the top, and then you cut cut it in half. If you cut like a little cross section through the center of it, so it's basically a pyramid that has the top cut off, and then there's a little section through the middle. But it's okay. all buried. Anyways, so they're having this final ceremony, and all of his wife, all 170 of them, have to go into this fucking tomb and die with him. I, I don't even know if they got poison or anything. I think they might just had to just chill there and like that's, starve. Yeah, no, I, that's I don't know. fucking shitty. I think that, that you, you see that kind of thing in a lot of other um, traditions too. Yeah, yeah. Not uncommon, but still really shitty. And this guy had so much. I mean, yeah, and so like the other thing too is that like the only reason he had them was again because of his dumb fucking immortality thing, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he had a bunch before that, but once his doctors like <laughs> prescribed that. They're like, oh, this will help you live longer. Just like bang a bunch <laughs> of women. 
And so, yeah, and like this tomb, you know, I really hope that it's going to be opened in my lifetime because this could be, I mean, this could be greater than the Great Pyramid of Egypt. This, I mean, this might be the greatest tomb in the entire world. People had always thought that the descriptions of the Grand Historian were just mythic, okay. you know. But once it once they discovered the Terracotta Army, all of a sudden, like... Oh, shit. <laughs> oh but yeah, so this tomb, now, it's a massive mound. You know, we talked about these mounds, how they can be difficult to excavate. But so this mound is is taller than the Great Pyramid. Now, they've done all kinds of tests on it. And this is probably the most penetrating information we're going to get in the in the foreseeable future because they have no plans to excavate it. But they've done uh, ground penetrating radar. And that's how they've kind of found out the shape of the mm -hmm. pyramid. And there is a chamber very clearly defined on the instrumentation that is the barrel chamber that is below. I think it's like 180 feet below the pyramid. It's way down there. And they did um, soil, soil samples on this all, all over this giant hill. And the levels of mercury on this thing are off the charts. Okay. So they're pr pretty sure that there's some there's some truth to the legend of okay. the rivers of mercury because there's just the excavations into the terracotta army continue ongoing and they found not only the army they found over a hundred acrobats and dancers uh they found any all kinds of animals uh, uh, all, all terracotta bronze. Or? oh bronze oh okay. bronze yeah bronze birds that were supposedly to be in these underground gardens like what you didn't say anything about underground gardens. Crazy. So in the Terracotta Army pit, in that really famous one, they found a replica of the Royal Chariot to half scale. So we know exactly what the Royal Chariot looked like. And there is one of these crossbows in it. So we have a replica of the crossbow. So we even know what that looks like. I'm, I can't help myself. I'm looking up a picture of what that, what that chariot looks like. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It has like a big umbrella on it. Oh, okay, yeah, it's very cool. Pulled by four horses, it looks like. Or are these unicorns? I can't tell from this picture. They're probably horses. <laughs> I think they're horses. Oh, yes, they're horses. I mean, this is, yeah, this is just like, yeah, it straight up looks like something alive that, that turned to metal, right? Yeah, it's Greek level artwork. Like, it's for the ancient world. And this is around the same time as the mm -hmm. Greeks. Like, it, it is. And we don't think of China as that kind of, ref maybe just because we're foreign barbarians, but. We don't think of them as having that refined kind of artistic techniques like that. I think when you look closer, like you'll find that they were like way, way advanced in a lot of different like like technologies and start, like inlaying and like all kinds of stuff. I mean, we already talked about their metallurgy, metallurgy. Yeah, and the and the tactics, the combined arms tactics. Yeah. And these engineering projects, the Great Wall. I mean, that's not easy. So, okay, I want to make one more point about, like, legalism and stuff, but then I want you to tell me more about this tomb because it sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, like, this is this is the, like, crazy thing that this crazy person, like, killed all of these people or whatever to do. And so, like, I think it would be interesting to kind of investigate that. But, like, just real quick, like, what strikes me is kind of, like, I don't want to say, like, humorous unless you have a really dark sense of humor, but, like, this kind of idea of, like, you know, legalism having this frame of coming from like, well, we pe people suck, like in order to make them like not suck, we have to like force them into like this certain prescribed action or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. And like, yeah. And at the heart of that is this like this distrust of human nature. And like, it's so ironic or poetically just or whatever that like 
we see that played out in the biggest scale with the emperor themselves like this is i think this um, exposes the inherent flaw of this type of philosophy because such a good point if, dude because yeah if human nature sucks it must well, suck for the emperor is like, not uh, exempt from that right yeah and so you know all it does is just magnify that suckiness or it has the potential to right like it doesn't i don't think it necessarily has to but i think that it seems to <laughs> and like i don't think lee c is an evil man and I, I think that really he probably thought that what they were doing w was good. I honestly think that. I don't think he was evil. And we, yeah, we, we've I, got to keep in mind that this is after a period of 200 years of civil war. So it, it's hard for yeah. us to understand that. But Okay, so legalism maybe doesn't work out so great all the time. But one thing that it does do well is like real solid bureaucracy, which with which you can accomplish some quote-unquote great things so yeah all right we've talked about the the underground tomb like i just i want just like a tiny bit more flavor if you've got it because it hasn't been opened it has that magical element maybe that's why they don't want to open it too it's like there's this yeah this magical past and i think that's part of it i'm just like my mind is like completely going off the rails like thinking about all of the stuff that must be in this thing and how cool it must be well, and so with the Egyptian pharaohs, they always had a problem with tomb robbers, right? Mm -hmm. These were the guys that built the pyramids. They were the ones who would rob it because they knew how to get in there. But I'm assuming the Chinese had a similar problem, and that's why he had everybody interned in there. So if it hasn't been robbed by the people that built it, which there's a good chance it has been. Sure, sure. But there's still some stuff that like would be hard to rob, like you know, like murals or whatever, right? Like, Oh, yeah. King Tut's tomb was robbed but it's still the greatest discovery that they've ever found in Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. So it was only robbed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly despoiled. <laughs> they actually think, like, the guys in that one, it's a complete side note, but, like, the builders in that one, they broke in in the night, and then they resealed it to make, like, they make it look like they didn't break in. So... The tomb was sealed when they were excavating it. But when they got into the chamber, all the stuff was disheveled in a very unceremonious display. Like it had been like people had been rooting through it. So they determined it had been looted. That's cool, though. That's that's cool that they could figure that out. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So that's Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China, the Qin dynasty. Now, after his death, you know, we talked a little bit about seeming battle that's happening around his tomb we don't really know the details of it but we do know that his state did not last his dynasty was consumed with fratricide they all murdered each other and <laughs> they all went crazy and murdered each other yeah it, it, i mean it's kind of sad it is sad well the conditions seem like uh, yeah right for it i guess i don't know yeah and it's it's not something unique you know it I've been reading about Constantine the Great and his family. He tried to set it up where he'd have this huge family that be ruling everything and each one of them would have a little part of the empire. And as soon as he died, it was all out war between them and they just butchered each other. And this was basically the same thing. But eventually, by the end of this man's life, he is utterly despised by the people. He's ended the wars, but he's introduced something even worse than the war. A bad peace. You know, a bad peace is worse than a war in a lot of ways, because at least in a war, you can fight. You can at least try and fight. 
these people, they had no chance and they're just along for the ride in his building projects and, you know, in his tomb and all this stuff. And so his dynasty was despised and it was replaced. So he was the only emperor in the Qin dynasty, the first and last, but the dynasty that came after him, the Han dynasty, that, that dynasty lasted 300 years and they were able to pick up on all of the things that he had accomplished, the unification of China, the unification of the language, of the culture, of the currency. And the Han dynasty was able to really take China to the next level as a unified power. So even though Ying Zhang, Qin Shi Huang, went crazy and killed thousands and thousands of people, millions of people, there wouldn't be a modern China without him. The word China mm. comes from Qin. So yeah, did the next dynasty, the Hung Dynasty, like did they adopt a different like philosophy, or like did legalism continue? Legalism was widely discredited after the Qin Dynasty and Confucianism. You know, the very thing they tried to stamp out, kind of reminiscent of the Romans and like Christianity and Judaism. Well, that mm-hmm. became the mo- that became the dominant philosophy for the emperors moving forward. So. But, you, but legalism left its imprint. And like I said, you can still see it today. China has severe punishments by our standards. Very, very severe. It didn't last a long time, but it left a huge imprint. Let's say it like that. Yeah. I think Li, Li Shi, he's, he's still around. Like it, People like Stalin, people like Hitler, people like Mao. They're channeling him, right? Like They're, they're looking back on, on history and seeing how this has been done before. How did they do it? Yeah. They attacked thought. They attacked literature. You know, they attacked books. You know, they. I didn't. I didn't realize that this that this form of totalitarianism was this old. I guess to be yeah. honest. Yeah. I will say uh, we've been talking about the grand historian all night, Sima Qian, or Qian. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. He's right there with Herodotus. He's like the Herodotus of the East. Okay, dope. And like we know that we we're just talking about how Qin tried to destroy all of the history, all the writing. Well, hundred years later, Han, they're looking back and trying to figure out what you know what how, what what happened. You know, what the fuck happened? Yeah, everything was destroyed, <laughs> so we got to figure out what happened. So, you know, so so what? Simatian is uh, his father actually is the court historian for you know the emperor, the Han emperor, and he comes up with this idea of having this you know this complete history of China, and he dies before it's ever you know realized. But so his son kind of inherits this. He inherits his father's like mad dream of oh writing. God, the... that sounds so exhausting. <laughs> oh my god! And this is a, like this guy is a classic, tragic historian. What ended up happening to him? He got castrated and exiled. He committed he, what? Yeah, I don't know exactly what happened. He somehow fell into disfavor, and he was castrated. So it's just kind of like yeah, this was not a legalist society, but you could see how those punishments like that that level of just kind of cruel punishment endured. Yeah. Well, I do want to point out that like, that's like that endured. It still probably does. I'm sure. But like, I mean, you take somebody like Alan Turing, um, who was, you know, one of the kind of forefathers of like computers and computing and, and code breaking and stuff. And like, he was like a huge figure in world war two in terms of breaking Nazi codes and stuff. And like in Britain, it was like illegal to be gay and he was gay and like they found out and they chemically castrated him even after all he had done for the country and he like died shortly after that yeah dude that's so fucked up 
It's so fucked up. They did say they're sorry. <laughs> they, I know that the, the government did a, like issue a formal apology. I think it was in the, in the 90s or something. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I guess that's something. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, so Sima, Sima Tian, he spent his entire life, his entire life making this work. And he ended up dying in disgrace, in exile, a castrated and broken man. But he knew that his work was going to was going to live on. I have never read any of his stuff. So this is the first kind of historian that we've talked about that I haven't actually read. So I really need to get my hands on his book. And I will say with his writing, it is very beautiful. It's very elegant. Everything is poetry and it's it's kind of like Herodotus, who, who is poetic, but this is just more poetic, even through translation. Yeah, there's a different vibe. I mean, the Greeks were such fucking meatheads. <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely a different vibe. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and just like, you know, again, his position is very compromised. He's in a dip. You know, look what happened to him. He got castrated in exile. Herodotus is a free man who can do whatever the fuck he wants. Right. He's just mm-hmm. traveling around. You know, nobody tells him what to do. That's not how the Greeks do things. The yeah. Greeks are very different than the, how the Chinese are. But who Sima Tian reminds me of is Josephus. Because when Josephus is writing his work, he's at the Roman court. And, you know, he has to write something to please his masters and also try and write history, you know. So I think Sima Tian's in a, in a similar situation. That makes sense. And he maybe just didn't navigate it quite as well as Josephus, right? <laughs> No, Josephus's life was, I mean, his personal life was a disaster, but he was never castrated in exile. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I mean, hard to tell, I mean, if somebody had a good life or not, right? Like, that's very subjective. So, <laughs> I don't think he ever lost favor with his captors. I think he was always kind of their favorite pet. Mm-hmm. As were, obviously, Sumatian did lose favor and was paid the price. And Yeah. But his work... I don't know. It's just kind of that classic romantic, hopeless romantic historian where, God, you know, his life is just his life sucked, but he suffered and gave us something really special, you know? Like yeah. It, yeah. It's almost like definitely. a form of immortality in itself, right? Sure. Yeah. And I was thinking about that too. Like this, yeah, that's kind of like this obsession, right? In a way, like this obsession with immortality or I guess this is another version of that maybe, but not about immortality, about immortality, immortalizing the past rather than yourself. But I guess you do immortalize yourself through doing that. Like Josephus or whoever, like, yeah, we only know about it because of what he said. So Mm -hmm. in the last episode, we talked a little bit about how reliable is our sense of history. And is it possible that everything we think is like historical truth is really not so much? Well, this is a pretty good example of that because, you know, he's writing 100 years after the fact, right? Yeah. And so we don't, which is not uncommon for historians. A lot of our historians we've talked about have been doing this. Oh, yeah. They've been like, well, well, after what they were researching for sure. Yeah. So, you know, and he's he's writing in a royal court for an emperor, you know, so this is not, this is a very compromised source, you know, but Mm -hmm. we just don't have anything else. So in the absence of, anything else besides the archaeology which seems to back up the tale it becomes history right because sure. that's that's what history is it's it's written documents it's and if there's nothing to challenge it then you know yeah well and what's 
the interesting thing about this is that history is a continual process. Like, right, every day a little bit more of history is made. And, like, I think it's kind of cool and interesting and useful to think about, like, well, who are really the people that are telling these stories? Like, the stories that you're hearing right now about what's going on or whatever. Like, it's the same thing only happening in a more, like, present tense way. Oh, absolutely, dude. Yeah. The context has obviously changed because of, well, because of IT, really. But Sure. You know, the archetypal themes are still there. Yeah, about power, no, about life after death, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these, these, we understand these things. Like, oh, we try to. <laughs> I, yeah. We can never really understand what's going through somebody's mind who wants to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of lives so they could build a tomb for themselves. Because they're scared about dying because of all the war crimes they did. His fear of like getting retribution in the next life must have been like one of the things that drove his quest for immortality, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was, I think it, yeah, I think it was. These nightmares, how would Sumatian know that 100 years after the fact that he's having nightmares, right? Like, it must have been a thing. Is it romanticized? I don't know. Like, is he trying to explain why he did all these things? Okay. No? Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Like, or it could have, like, I mean, I guess on the flip side, it could have just been like common knowledge that the emperor had horrible nightmares every night. I, I don't know. Interesting. I mean, it though. could be like, I, I didn't really get into this, you know, his paranoia. I, I kind of forgot to talk about this. You know, we mentioned it a little bit, but he would be traveling around after that assassination attempt that we talked about. He never kept his court in one place. And it was actually a secret punishable by pain of death if you revealed the location of the emperor. So he got like a missive from some city that came directly to him. It was really important missive that rebellion was happening or something. He wasn't concerned with the rebellion. He was concerned that the missive came directly to him. So somebody knew where he was, basically. <laughs> and he wanted the person killed who knew who sent it. He didn't care about the rebellion. Yeah. So like this paranoia. And he built all these passages so he had all these palaces all over the place and he connected them all with these underground passages very much like the nazis they were obsessed with underground passages wow. the height of this guy's paranoia was really something special and it, 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 it just the whole thing about when i when i have everything when i've con i can have anything i want i control everything well what do you want then you want things you can't have right that's just kind of how it works. If you, if you can have anything, you just naturally want what you don't have. Sure. And I'll, yeah, a lot of psychologists will say like once you've like, you know, completed Maslow's, you know, basic human needs or you have the things that you want, like that one of the components that like completes the puzzle is like kind of this like life's purpose or like for a lot of people, it's spirituality or like a cause that you believe in or whatever the fuck, like, you know, being a good parent, whatever it is for people like. Sure. But like, yeah. And, and so... For him, for him it was this. it's being immortal. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fucking super interesting. Like, I can't wait to talk more about China. Like, so much cool shit. Such a rich history. Hell yeah. There's a lot of you know, directions we could go. And like, you know, I studied under a really great professor in college from China, Dr. Tian. And so I, I actually do know a lot about modern China, but the ancient China, I didn't, I don't know anything about. So it's been, I didn't know about Sima Tian. And like, honestly, he's, he's one of my favorite historians already. And I haven't even read him. So 
just the passages I've read are so beautiful, so poetic. And the fact that everything is going back to him, he just, he's one of these giants in history that really should, there needs to be some kind of marriage between Eastern and Western history or Civ, whatever, because oh, there's, definitely. there's no reason that I should never have known this story because this is a huge story, right? Like this is such cool shit. Like it's got it, everything you could want. I, know, I mean, it's, it's a, it really, it has everything. It's a great story. Not only is it a great story, it's super influential. But, you know, I apologize for the names. Um, they were bad, but I hope that we got a, <laughs> a little bit of... <laughs> there, I mean, I did my best. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think the, I think we got the story. and um, I think so. Yeah, it... We could have gone much more into the Great Wall, into the Terracotta Army, uh, into the court intrigues because there are two other assassination attempts that are also pretty interesting but um you know they're, i'm they're... super into like coming back to this at some point i mean right like well i think that the the next dynasty the han dynasty is one that we probably should talk about um mm-hmm. so yeah it's very analogous to the roman empire for china and the main ethnicity in china is han so it's kind of comes back to that period so I think that would probably be a good place to go from here. I also do want to, I do kind of want to do a Confucius episode because uh, he's another kind of Jesus analogous figure with mm-hmm. the amount of influence that he's had on people just by his life, by his teachings. Yeah. And, th- and some crossover too, in terms of philosophy, I would say. Absolutely. Like- yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I mean, maybe we could do a Confucius episode and, um, I definitely when you know when we get more into the Middle Ages, we're going to talk about the Mongols. So hell yeah, the Yuan Dynasty is really where my knowledge of China starts. So hell yeah, well okay. So if people listening like have any suggestions or thoughts or questions or anything they want to like hit us up, like how can they do that? Oh, that's a great question, Luxa. They can go to our spiffy new Instagram account, ad hoc at ad hoc history. <laughs> can see pictures of all the cool shit we're talking about yeah i've been posting maps pictures all kinds of good stuff so oh yeah go check that out you can also email us at ad hoc history pod at gmail.com yeah all right well yeah thank you all so much for listening um i hope you enjoyed this episode i'm wondering though like Okay, so we can take we're we're not sure if uh, like Sima Kwan is like really that um you know accurate. We we talked about like, you know, the situation and stuff, but like let's just assume that like what he wrote about the emperor's nightmares was true. Sure. Like do you think or maybe like more from a broad philosophical or esoteric stance, like is it your opinion that in the next life the emperor was tortured are tormented by his victims. Honestly, dude, I, w- I have been thinking about this. I don't think so. I think he, I think his army protected him. Okay. My sense of it is that he conquered the spirits of his enemies and that he is still reigning after death in unbelievable grandeur. Okay. <laughs> That's my sense of it. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, there's the idea of, like, you know, what you believe will happen after you die will happen. And so if he was 
got himself to a point where he thought shit would be cool, then maybe that's true. I don't know, right? There is that, you know, this sounds cliche and stupid, but there is kind of this thought that they don't want to excavate the tomb because they don't want to disturb him. Sure. Disturb well, his spirit, you know, so. He did. Yeah, he wasn't great. Like, he seems like he'd be okay. He Maybe, gone. yeah, better that he's he's entombed there. Although he's He's like this vampire lord that's like, <laughs> comes out and like conquers the world. I am immortal, and I was just waiting for you to dig me back up I again. did discover it. <laughs> oh, man. What a twist. That That's why they're what not excavating it. What a fun twist that would yeah, be. Yeah, <laughs> that's the truth. See, that's the truth. That's why they're not excavating it. The secret, oh, that's the secret histories of, of Sumatian. I cannot wait to see you on Ancient Aliens talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> they probably have one, dude. <laughs> but anyways, dude, I, hope that, I hope that was fun. I don't know if I really did it service, but, um, you know, lots of cool characters, lots of good philosophy stuff that we can get back to. And, you know, big personalities, big power, big hubris, big tragedy. Yeah. He's obviously a great man, right? But, but at what cost? So this, this terrible greatness. Yeah, I think that this idea of greatness is something that we're, we've been struggling with and we'll probably continue to struggle with on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's quite the enigma. <laughs> but anyways, thank you everyone for joining us. And uh, thank you, Lexa. Thank you. This has been really, really cool and interesting. Fuck yeah. Yeah. And we'll see you in the next one. Bye, guys. As your body grows bigger, your mind must flower. It's great to learn, because knowledge is power. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Yeah.